Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Happy Friday. Welcome back to another episode of Latitude's In Session Podcast. Today, got an awesome guest in store for you, repeat offender. We've got Corey Godar. Corey, thanks for hopping out, man. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me, man. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited for this one. So we actually just got back from Indiana a few hours ago. I just got home and shot you a text and like, hey, let's record, get this thing recorded before we forget about it. But uh, but it's fresh in mind right now. We were just out there for a couple of days and uh, we spring scouted out there. Found some really good stuff. We were really excited to put a bunch of cameras out and we'll kind of dive into that process, what it looked like, what we found, what we did like, what we didn't like. Let's let's kick it right off, man. We'll start off with our camera pulls. So we're centering this this style around hub systems because we feel like it's just going to be our best opportunity to get on good deer. So we're getting that first hub system and Corey, I'll let you uh, take it from here for a little bit. You know, the way we way we set cams here is we, we did do the staging process where uh, we started cams basically all the way out in the bottom of the hub towards the egg. And, uh, you know, where we found sign, we staged them from the front to the back. And the very first cam we went to pool, we were real jacked up about, you know, a great inventory cam and it was gone. Uh, so real similar lesson we learned to Kentucky that, you know, putting cams out during your winter slash spring scouting, uh, you know, you're, you're risking a lot of chance that, you know, they're going to get messed with or, or taken uh, or even that green up, you know, is going to cause a lot of false triggering. So first cam out the gate, gone. So we kind of proceeded to head down the system, you know, as we stage cams, which kind of goes back you know, to the importance of staging them is, you know, you lose one, uh, but you, if you are staging them back, you're still going to get some intel out of that. So uh, we just kind of 
worked our way back and kind of really didn't find much more success for a little while there. Can't remember if it was the second one or the third one, but card was taken out of that as well. So we did end up finally getting some intel though on the furthest back cam, uh, which was on a nice hub scrape and made our decisions from there. But yeah, it was uh, another wake up call that uh, if you are doing this out of state process, you know, kind of making sure you're setting multiple trips to be able to check on your cams and, and prepare yourself for the worst good uh, learning takeaway there. Yeah, I completely agree. I would say that if you only had one trip that you could take a year, I would wait until the summertime, to be honest, if you're going to put cameras out. If that's your plan, to put cameras out. Just go in the summertime. That way you're not getting messed with by the turkey hunters or mushroom hunters or anything else. Um, having that third camera in that, in that hub really helped us because the first two having no intel, even though the deer trails were hammered to a bean field, you know, it was very discouraging at first. And, you know, we drove by that bean field. We looked over at it and we were like, man, we're going to be in the game when we circle back around and go check those cameras. And so, yeah, it was a, it was quite a bummer, but what, you know, down at the bottom of that drainage, we did end up putting another camera up pretty much like 20 feet away from where the one that got stolen was, but we elevated it way up this time. So we made it more difficult to get to. It wasn't elevated before and we made a beautiful mock scrape. I mean, that mock scrape is just like, I just recorded a podcast with David Riley. You've been talking to David quite a bit. I've talked to Troy Pottinger a ton and just taking all of that information and trying to mesh it into our strategy. I feel like one of the best mocks we've ever made. So I love the idea having that there just because they're going to be running out of those drainages and all those trails. I mean, we had like multiple hub systems that hit like a main hub. So you have your micros that turn into a main hub and then they hit like a focal point before they cross a river and go to that bean field. And we had about like 10 trails that met right there from all different directions. And so I feel confident that with that camera there now, those beans being between knee and waist high, those deer are going to be on that camera. Any deer in that system pouring out to those beans in those like three or four hubs are going to be on that camera. And I think we're going to get a lot of intel from that. So, so really excited about that one. That's more of an, in, it's either an Intel cam or like a rut cam for me because it's right alongside the river on the front side of the ridges. And, uh, Michael Perry talked about that when I recorded with him about, you know, this isn't a swamp, but finding like those river bottoms where there's a bunch of points that jut out towards the river. It's most efficient for the deer to run the front, like the head of those ridges. That way they're not going up and down a lot during the rut. And you can see the rut trail with the old rubs and the old scrape lines going down through there. So I just feel like we're going to be in the game for the rut for early season. I, I really like that spot, even though it was a little bit discouraging. We hopped over top. You know, we basically had trail camera problems the entire first day between them getting stolen, cars getting stolen. We had a couple that, that just false triggered. Overall, I wasn't happy with the trail cameras at all. I think like we've talked about before from this point on we're just not putting any out in the springtime because they're probably going to be gone it's probably a waste of lithium batteries it's probably a waste of your card and the camera might be stolen as well so so day one uh you know we went up and over a bunch of different hub systems we put on like 15 miles and really the most excitement we had was the back half of that system when we encountered a rattlesnake. So Corey, let's, let's jump into that story real quick and get that out of the way before we dive into some of the other good stuff that we found. Yeah. So I'm from Ohio, uh, you know, Jake's from New York and now Ohio, and we, we don't spend a lot of time around rattlesnakes. Uh, this is my first personal encounter with one and definitely learned, you know, going forward, got to be more prepared to encounter the unknown. And uh, thankfully, you know, we're both wearing snake gators, uh, both walking the trekking poles, uh, you know, covered in permethrin, you know, just kind of trying to be proactive against the ticks and the snakes and, you know, what could go wrong. But, you know, we came out 
of a micro hub. And basically we're working around a huge point trying to go to another micro hub that we're running a camera in. And right when we turned the corner of the point, there was a bunch of downfall. And in some of these systems, you could tell maybe a big storm, potentially even a tornado came through recently because there was just downfall in a lot of them. So we're, we're heading down the trail to pull this camera. The camera's probably about 50, 60 yards in front of us. And there's a sapling. Behind the sapling, about 10 yards is is downfall. And this is the type of downfall that, you know, you're not just going to step over one step. You kind of have to climb up on and get over. And Jake chose to go right of the sapling. Had he gone left, I think he would have stepped right on on the uh, the snake. Uh, so his his left foot lands probably a foot to the right of the snake. He then proceeds to step forward, put his leg up on the uh, downfall to step over the tree. And I'm following him probably four to five steps behind. And as I got to about where he was when he planted his foot to step up on the log, I saw the snake's head come up. And if you've ever watched them strike, you know, they'll be curled up and their head's going to rise. And when they do that, you know, it's usually a sign of they're about to get defensive. And this thing was staring right at Jake's butt and just watching him like a hawk. And at that point, he was still within striking range. So I caught the movement, absolutely panicked, squealed, jumped backwards, which scared Jake. So Jake leaped forward like a leapfrog over the downfall. I jumped back and thankfully we were both fine. It was a shock for sure. It definitely was. And I mean, I it was a bright yellow snake and he was sunning. So there was like a patch of sun and we have some good pictures and videos of this, but it was just like he was in a patch. So he didn't stick out at all unless he picked his head up over top of, you know, there was a lot of uh, like brows in there that's like knee high almost. So he's kind of hidden behind that stuff. But but yeah, I, I stepped, I mean, right past him. And all I hear, I put my leg on that log and it, it sounded like Arnold Schwarzenegger stubbed his toe. It was like, <laughs> ah, <laughs> and he's, Corey's running away and I hear this, oh, like he's falling off a cliff on fire. <laughs> and I'm like, I, th- I thought immediately hornets or something was wrong. So I just run full speed, jumping, hopping, skipping and swatting for bees, even though there's no bees. I wasn't sure, but, but yeah, the noise that Corey made just absolutely <laughs> killed me. Oh man. But, um, but yeah, so it was definitely in all seriousness, it was a really close encounter. We, we have been prepared for that. I mean, I've put on 5,000 miles scouting in snake country in five years and Corey's put on a ton of miles and that's our first encounter. And it's definitely a wake up call. It's not going to happen whenever you expect it to happen. It's going to happen at a time when you least expect it. And so I think just general preparation is a really big thing. And the same thing goes for ticks with tucking our pants in and, you know, tucking our shirts in and keeping your belt tight and spraying your your clothes with permethrin. And there's just all these proactive things you can do to make sure that you're going to be safe because nobody wants to get Lyme's disease. Nobody wants to get bit by a rattlesnake. And I don't care how tough you are, like it can happen to anybody at any point in time. So my thought process is if you're miles away from the truck with no cell signal down in these area scouting, why not just be proactive so you can make it home to your family or, you know, other, other diseases and things like that. So, so I think we definitely made the right move. I'm glad that we don't know if the gators work or not. Like he didn't strike and actually hit my gator, but I did have them on. So yeah, I mean, just a crazy, crazy situation in general. So we checked that camera and at this point, I mean, we're really on edge. We are not excited about being in the woods whatsoever. Like I looked back and told you, I was like, I went from feeling like a really good woodsman before that rattlesnake encounter 
to, I don't even care to look up at this point. Like my eyes are glued to the ground and, um, but we did, we finished out the day, you know, we still had what, four or five miles left at that point. I believe we had a couple systems left and we just kept running into cameras that were messed with. We had cards gone pretty much in all these cameras. They're really hard to access spots too. And the crazy thing is there's no hunter sign at all really, but this is going to get into what we're going to talk about in a little bit, quite a bit, the macro versus the micro hubs. And I think that there's a lot to be said about that. Um, but yeah, uh, the rest of the first day, as far as I'm concerned, like we did have some decent box on cam, but nothing crazy. We got out of the woods with a couple hours left. We went and glass bean fields, which was just once again, an efficiency thing. Let's just locate deer because we knew on these cameras, we're not going to have a lot of deer right now. It was mainly a trip to just go make sure that they were set the right, the right way. And that our mock scrapes were set up the right way for season. So we can get good Intel when the deer shift off the beans. So we're anticipating the shift, but it's very hard even for somebody that's doing that to believe in it all the time. Like there was a point where we did get down because we didn't have a bunch of good pictures on the cameras that were working. And the thing that I, I told Corey and I had to keep telling myself is, hey, this is what you plan on. This is what you expect is you expect them to shift back in here. You're anticipating a shift, but it's a mental battle for sure. That's definitely a struggle because everybody wants to have pictures of big deer on their camera. You know, you're like, just please want, have one picture. But overall, I mean, we definitely saw bigger deer in the bean fields than we saw on the cameras for sure. And when the beans get cut, like we're in the wood lots, we're in the blocks of wood in between the bean fields. So I feel really confident that we're going to have deer to chase. The sign tells us what it needs to tell us. We play this game in Ohio every year, and I just think that it's going to be the same game. So going into day two, day two, we ended up shifting quite a bit, and I'm really glad we did. Corey, let's get into some of those cameras that you set out ahead of time. The day prior and, and in our first spring, our first spring trip, uh, we, we set up a lot of these systems based off south winds, south and southwest winds. And the reason for that is that's the predominant wind in the area. And, you know, there's two things to think about behind that is one, you know, it provides leeward bedding for these deer in those systems, but it also allows you to, to access those systems with the wind in your face if you're accessing from the bottom. The thing about that, though, is if you set up every system for a south or southwest wind and season comes around and the time you're actually out there hunting, you don't have that south or southwest wind. So you end up with a north or a northeast. The purpose of this is to set up a plan B. And so we set up basically a series of plan B hubs, real similar concept, series of drainages running to egg. And these hubs were, you know, maybe a half hour or so from uh, the system that we had been scouting and set up in. And the one thing that stood out is the elevation changed a little bit. They were slightly steeper uh, and slightly more narrow. And the first thing we realized with that is there was really not much hunter sign in there. Uh, but, you know, it, it really did concentrate the deer movement. And we, you know, took the same process. We staged, staged the cams from the egg back to the end of the hub. And once again, we, we did have a lot of uh, trail camera problems with this area, but there was a lot of sign. You know, we we found a good four finger track in a scrape. The kind of the concept for this is, you know, casting this wide of a net based off this many different winds, we're able to go hunt uh, when we get the opportunity to hunt and have somewhere to attack. If we set everything up on the same wind, you know, there might come a time that we're in the scramble mode because we don't want to be walking into a hub that runs from south to north on a north wind blowing our scent back into the back of the hub. So that was kind of the thought process behind it. Yeah. And it, that's exactly, I mean, you pretty much nailed it. And I get very narrow minded on the like prevailing wind, predominant wind hubs, just because I play that game in Ohio so much. But the thing I keep forgetting about out of state, which you're helping me with a ton, like this tandem we have going is so good because you're finding those plan Bs and those, those other wind options 
and you're really focused on that where I've been focused on the prevailing wind. So like we have just everything that we need for when we go out of state. You did the same thing in Kentucky. You did the same thing in Indiana. And it's really opened my eyes up. And it's just, it makes so much sense to me that that we're doing that. But it was kind of the same story with those cams, right? Like those cams, we actually, we, we're running a lot of different types of cameras. These ones just so happen to be Tascos. They're brand new, but they just didn't take any pictures. I don't think, did we have a single picture from a deer in that system? We did not. We, yeah. we had all Tascos in there and I don't know that it was necessarily the camera's fault. I did run 32 gig cards in those and I did not format them. I don't know that the Tascos can take 32. They might max out at 16. That might've been our problem. Uh, but once again, it, you know, it comes back to testing your gear and being prepared and something we didn't do and totally dropped the ball on, you know, due to rushing around trying to buy every camera we can get, you know? Yeah. And, and that's exactly it. And like we get in a rush sometimes and we've gotten better at that, but it's definitely a process. Like everything that, everything that we preach on here, we've had guests on that preach some things and you know, every one of those things is like a constant work in progress, even for ourselves. And I go through the exact same thing where I have to keep telling myself, like, you know, be confident, slow down, take your time, really dissect these areas, make sure all your gears working properly, make sure you're being proactive with things. And so, you know, I think that, moving forward, we put some good cameras in there. We did cut a really good track. And so this one, this started building my confidence. This system is mainly cornfield based where the other ones were bean field based. And so the cornfield based systems in general seem like the deer are still bedding in the hills and then rolling to it where a lot of the bean systems, it almost seems like the deer are just spending their time out in the beans. But we caught like a day or two old track in the hub scrape that you had a camera on that wasn't functioning. Four finger track. I mean, fully mature buck, no doubt about it. And it's a, it's a lone track and it's one of the only tracks on that trail at all. So there is definitely a good size buck in there that I'm sure either of us would be happy to shoot in Indiana. And that was a big confidence booster. So we have some better cameras in there. We worked up some good mocks, sprayed it all with buck fever. Uh, and then uh, about a week ago, I was scouting a new area, just e-scouting. We found one more spot just as a backup plan. We ended up going in there and it ended up being one of the best spots of the trip as well. I think just the second day in general was a lot better because we got in more rugged terrain. And we're going to talk about this quite a bit as well. But I think that, in my opinion, the, the best hubs that I find are always in rugged terrain, steeper hills, cliffed out, more narrow bottoms, more narrow ridge tops. These rolling bluffy hills, in my opinion, the deer just aren't, the movement's not concentrating to a focal point as much because they can navigate a lot of different ways. Where we got in that last system and we we could only get down that ridge one way. And so, you know, the deer are doing the exact same thing. There's a cliff, there's a creek bottom that is literally moss covered where it is like a mile long slip and slide. That's, you know, it would just be a nightmare. Like, you know, we had all sorts of trouble trying to go down that creek bottom. We actually had to climb back up on the side of the ridge. But so the deer have to take those same routes that we're taking a lot of times. And the more rugged the terrain, in my opinion, the more you get that focal point. And so the hubs that are rugged are much more productive, at least from what I've seen. And it's the same thing in Ohio. I have areas that's bluffy. I have areas that I hunt that are more rugged. And the rugged areas, those hubs are always more productive and they always hold bigger deer. And I don't know exactly what there is to that. Probably the fact that it's harder to hunt. It's easier for the deer to have the advantage, but it does, like if you find those systems, it does pinch them down quite a bit. This last system had, it, like it's basically a macro hub, but then you have a bunch of micro hubs as well. And the first hub we went in was a micro hub. I mean, it was right across the river, hit a micro hub. Well, it has everything we're looking for. It has the scrapes, we're fist bumping, we're all excited. We put two cameras up in there. I think that that is absolutely a kill location. 
And then we looked at the map and we're like, well, let's go to the rest of these hubs. There's a big macro hub to the north, and then there's a micro hub further to the north. So we get up on top of the ridge. We're all excited because, man, we're in the game right now, right? We walk, I don't know what it is, a mile and a half-ish down to that macro hub. And the macro hub is, even though it makes like a J up against the private, it's completely destroyed because the guys are coming out private and there's a bunch of hill climbs and stuff back there for four-wheelers and dirt bikes. And which we'll get into the macro and first micro hub thing right now. I think it's uh it's really critical to be honest with you. You you know we've been in this year alone. We've stepped foot in over a hundred different hubs. There's no doubt about it. Probably closer to two hundred different hubs. And the majority of those hubs that are macro hubs, and I'm talking like 19 out of 20 of them, are not productive areas at all in my opinion because of the human traffic it's not always hunter traffic like there were some in a couple states that did have tree stands down there thumbtacks or guys were coming in from the private but the biggest thing is a lot of these uh macro hubs that have like flatter bottoms and you know a couple hundred yard wide bottoms are just like recreational sites we found campsites we found jeep trails in illinois we found uh dirt bike trails and jumps and four-wheeler trails and horseback trails and they're all unmarked and they're all coming in from the private. It's just like the private uh, landowners are just almost using it as like recreation back there. Those macro hubs just attract people and they attract yep. hunters. And they're the easy ones, in my opinion, to see on a map. You know, there's a ton of talk about hubs right now. And I feel like a lot of people look at these maps and they find these like huge hubs that are blatantly obvious and they pin it and they go in there and it's probably not very productive for them. Some may be, but I, I have a feeling most aren't and they're going through the same thing we're going through. And I think that the thing that we need to just make sure that we get out there is these hub systems, like the, a macro hub is going to have micro hubs nearby. And so in my opinion, I would focus on the micro hubs, like the ones that are harder to identify from a map. Sometimes they even take boots on the ground. They don't necessarily look like the perfect C from a map, but when you get in there, it is a bowl and it makes a lot of sense. It's just hard to actually see that. The ones that are blatantly obvious do tend to have some sort of human sign in there from, you know, one thing or the other. But I mean, we've seen it in four states this year as a team. Like we've literally walked side by side in four different states and seen the exact same thing in every state. Every time we get in a big macro hub, a couple hundred yard wide bottom junk. And then we find these little like corner micro hubs that are, they're not even always hard to get to. That's the crazy part about this. Sometimes they're right off the road and they're extremely productive and they have the sign we're looking for and they have the travel routes that we're looking for. And those micro hubs just are, they just filter the deer down to once again, a focal point. Like the deer don't have a lot of room for travel. They're almost forced down into that bottom and then they have to make a decision. And if they're not forced into the bottom, they're going like up over the top, but we're walking up there too. And we're, we're capturing that data. So that's kind of my thoughts on it, Corey. How do you feel about it? I can't agree more. I think you said that very well. You know, some things just to paint a picture on that, you know, when we're talking a, a macro hub, that bottom might be 300 to 400 yards wide. In a micro hub, that bottom might be 50 yards wide. And so you think of the advantage in a hunting scenario. If you're going into a micro hub and say, say you set up on uh, the south south facing slope side, there's a good chance you could probably shoot the majority of the entire bottom. If you're going into these uh, macro hubs and you find you find a good scrape, you know, hugging that south facing slope and maybe maybe you missed a travel trail that's much more towards the middle or maybe it's, you know, on the other side. There's a good chance that you might 
you might be 100% right. You might have found that bedding. You might have predicted that travel path. But, you know, that deer might just veer differently. A tree might fall. You might There might be downfall that changes the travel pattern. And you're going to miss that opportunity, not because you hunted it wrong, not because you played it wrong, but just simply due to the width of the, the area they have to travel. So that, that micro hub provides a lot of benefits. I mean, and when you think about it in a scrape standpoint, in that macro hub, that scrape could be in a variety of places. If you get into the micro hub, you know, there's almost, it's almost like there's only one spot it can be. If you get all the way into the back of the drainage, you're going to find an area where all the travel trails cross. And if the drainage is narrow enough, you know, it's pretty obvious where the scrape should be. And it's, if there's not a scrape there, it's usually obvious where you should put a mock scrape. So there's a lot of benefits to it. When you approach a hub, the first thing you're trying to figure out, you know, is a path of travel. And, you know, and that kind of usually dictates your setup a lot of the times. Those micro hubs give you that a lot more clear than the macro will. Another note on the recreation that we, a kind of a pattern we've seen is the place with farms. When I say farms, I don't mean egg fields. I mean the established farms where the farmer's living with his family. That usually seems to encourage the recreation. And it's the same thing we saw here. You know, the farmer was living basically on the top. His farm backed up to this series of drainages. And, you know, whether it's his son, family member himself or, or whoever, you know, that that recreation was very, very prominent. And, you know, it's just due to the ease of access. If that was just an egg field, I have a feeling it probably wouldn't have been there. So it's just something to consider and another thing to look out for. But and then being identifiable on a map, you know, that I think people that have been hunting hubs for a very long time, you know, probably know a lot of this. But the people that are like, you know, experimenting with it, figuring it out, playing the game, coming, those big hubs are going to attract them right off the map, you know, grabs your eye. And so it's just something to consider that the micro hubs might be hot because they're not getting the pressure. They're not getting the sign. And we've also found ourselves getting lost in these big systems, you know, all day. You know, we get back there and we're kind of like forcing to make it happen. You know, we find this huge hub, the huge system, all these betting points. They got to be in here. They got to be in here. And we end up spending two to three hours walking the same system, trying to make it work. And, and you find sign, but you probably could have walked five to six micro hubs in the time it took you to walk that one big drainage. And so, you know, it just kind of comes back to uh, finding a balance and an efficiency standpoint of determining where your time's best spent. And we've seemed to find that in the micros. Yeah. And just to hit on that a little bit more. So even even beyond two to three hours, I mean, we've spent like up to five hours in one macro system before. And like I said, that system has a lot of different hubs, but you have to like ridge jump to get to each one of them. And if you're ridge jumping four or five ridges in rugged terrain, it could be an all day process. And so for me, like, yes, the potential is always there and they're probably worth investigating, but it is very time consuming. And you basically are like throwing all your eggs in one basket with that, where you're saying, okay, it's probably the same herd of deer in this system, but I'm going to tear through every one of these hubs and just see what I can come up with and see what pieces I can put together. It might not be a bad move. And I've done that before and had success. But the thing that I'm starting to see out of state is from an efficiency standpoint, because a lot of the hubs we're finding are, that are good are micro hubs and they're not far off the road. They're not really overlooked. Like some of the best ones are way far back. Don't get me wrong, but a lot of them are right in front of your face, right under your nose. So from an efficiency standpoint, to me, it's like, okay, well, why don't we just pick out a bunch of them that are like sub a half mile from the road and, you know, pick five a day that are miles apart. And we just take the truck, which is the most efficient tool you have and drive to a hub, run in the woods for 20 minutes, set up a camera on a scrape and get out and then drive a couple miles into a brand new herd of deer and do the same thing. That to me, if, if I can put cameras over top of 10 different herds of deer in two days, 
in 10 different systems as opposed to spending two days in the same system, just like deep diving and, you know, tackling every, every inch of it. I just feel like the chance of finding good deer and more deer is going to come from being efficient and finding those micro hubs. The, the thing about the micro hubs, like I just want to hit on it one more time because it's so important that the micro hubs do not always look like a hub on a map. And I just drew out an example so I could kind of explain it better. But imagine that you have, and it doesn't always have to be ag. That's the other side of this. Like we're just talking about ag because it just congregates deer. But if you do have an ag field out in front, like say the ag fields to the north, the ridges are to the south. Say that you have a main spine that runs east to west. And then you have sub ridges, let's say five sub ridges that jut out off the main spine towards the ag field. So every couple hundred yards, you have a ridge that juts out to the north and there's a point on that ridge. Well, if you follow any of those drainages in between those points from a mapping standpoint, it's just going to look like a drainage. But when you get up in the head of that, up where those two ridges start to meet at right before it starts gaining a bunch of elevation, and sometimes it's even on the elevation, you're going to have a U. Like every ridge that is next to another ridge is going to have a U. If you have any sub ridges or secondary spines coming off of any of those ridges back in the head of that U, you've got a micro hub, which allows for multiple bedding points and you know a bunch of different travel routes. And those are great spots, but they don't look like a hub. So everybody right now, I keep seeing it on these Facebook groups, like hubs are the new thing, like hubs are the 2023 fad. Well, let's get ahead of that. And I think the way to get ahead of it is to start saying, okay, well, all those guys are looking at the macro hubs, these micro hubs that you can't even tell are hubs. It's just like, uh, I heard Chad Sylvester talk about this years and years ago on a podcast about uh, about saddles that you can't see on a map, like the very subtle terrain features. And, you know, the big saddles will always have the ladder stands on top of the ridge, but the subtle saddles that you can't see on a topo map are typically the ones that are going to be more productive. And it's the same thing with hubs. The really obvious ones either are going to have hunter pressure or some sort of recreation, you know, nine times out of 10. The micro hubs that you can still see on a map are going to be a little bit better. The micro hubs that are subtle that you can't see unless you're in there, boots on the ground, are going to be the ones to go after, in my opinion. And if I look at where I've killed deer in Ohio, a lot of those are those micro hubs. They're the ones that it's almost like you have the macro hub, like you have a bunch of ridges that create a macro hub. Let's say you have three ridges. You have one to the north, one to the south, one right in the middle. Well, that one that splits the system, the one in the middle, is going to have micro systems on each side of it. And as you follow those drainages higher, you're going to you're going to find micro hubs further back in there. And so don't hunt down in the bottom in the macro, maybe work your way up and check those micros to see if there's better movement up there. I can tell you right now, the movement's going to be pinched down narrower because it gets smaller. As you're gaining elevation up that drainage, you're going to have more narrow travel. And the other thing with this hub thing is it's not always about killing the deer in the bottom of the hub. What the hub does, in my opinion, in the hills better than just about anything else is it congregates deer at a certain point of the year so you can gain inventory of that area. Can you kill down there? Absolutely. But what a hub is really telling me is, hey, there's a buck in this system I want to kill. I don't need to kill him in this bottom, but he's here. And so now, because he's going down and checking that scrape, he, he exists. Now, I don't care if I have to kill him on the spine of the ridge, on the side of the ridge, on a, on a logging road, on a secondary spine. Like it's not a one track mind thing with a hub where you're killing them over the hub scraping the bottom. That's great if you can pull that off. But a lot of times you do have to gain elevation to actually get after that deer. And so that's another thing to keep in mind here is like the, the biggest reason for a hub scrape, the thing that I, the reason I focus on hub scrapes is I can't find any better feature in the hills to gain inventory on the deer herd. 
And once I have that inventory, if a deer is acting dumb and dropping down into a hub, I'm going to go kill him. But if he's acting smart and he's up high, I'm going to get up high and I'm going to try to chase him. And so I just, you know, I just wanted to ring that home because I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions out there right now with these, you know, everybody's trying to learn this as quickly as possible. And I just feel like there's a little bit more to it, which is a big part of this. Like the the hubs close to the road, the micro hubs that you can kind of get into and efficiently just run in and out of as opposed to spending all day in these systems. You know, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. So as far as, uh, as far as confidence in Indiana, Corey, how are you feeling? I feel good. I I don't feel, I, I don't think anything's ever, you know, a no brainer hundred percent, you know, but, um, I feel this summer trip once again, similar to Kentucky set us up to have a lot more chances and a lot more opportunity. Um, had we not gone out there, uh, I definitely would be feeling a lot worse. You know, the cameras, as we saw, uh, most cases, we're not in good shape uh, or just missing. So uh, now that we kind of respread our wings, got the cams out, fixed everything, identified a lot of oaks and identified crops, you know, even just looking at the beans versus the cornfields, based on the time that we're going to be in Indiana, those cornfields are going to be very valuable. You know, the beans are going to be gone by the time we get there in most cases. So I feel a lot better now that we went, spent the time there, and I, I hope somebody gets a crack at something. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we're going to have encounters for sure. I agree with you. I, once again, same story as Kentucky. I feel like we probably saved our season by going out there and putting in that little bit extra work. We learned a ton. We fixed all the cameras up. We've got uh, about a dozen mock scrapes. We've got some natural scrapes that are going to be really productive. And we learned a lot about the food sources. The We do have a lot of systems that do dump out to beans, but those systems do have really, I mean, some of the best red oaks dropping I've ever seen. The acorns on those reds are huge this year, which they're not like that in Ohio at all, but those Indiana red oaks are 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 awesome this year in my opinion. We walked, you know, 30 miles in 2 days and we saw hundreds of white oak trees and only found a couple white acorns and they didn't look good, but the reds are on fire out there. So I'm really excited at the fact that there's going to be a lot of food and a lot of mast up in those hills. And as we, you know, even if we don't get out there early October, if we get out there mid to late October, well, the does are going to be feeding on those reds heavily and those bucks are going to be in the woods, in the hills, just, you know, trying to figure out what does are coming into heat. So I feel like we're going to have a, a lot of good encounters. We're going to have a lot of fun. And, and this is a long game. You know, this camera game, this whole thing we're doing with scouting, if we kill this year, great. But the goal for me is to be able to kill consistently in like three to five years. That's, yep. that, that's where my head's at is I, it's a long-term investment. There's no way to rush this process. There's no, uh, you know, secrets or anything like that. There's no secret sauce that's going to get you to kill a deer the first year you're out there. I think we just need to continue the process we're, we're doing in all these states. We need to go out and actually spend a lot of time in the woods this fall you know, as a team and separately as much as we can, just, just put boots on the ground, sit in the stand, observe deer, figure out what they're doing, figure out the tendencies in different states, try to get a, a good grasp on food sources, document food sources and travel and, and everything else. And then three to five years from now, I think that we're really going to start to get dialed out there. So that's pretty much all I got, man. Um, I think that it was a great trip overall. The, the stage is set at this point. So we've got, we got 16 days and we'll be in Kentucky, which I am absolutely pumped about. We did the same process out there about a month ago and we're not even going to go pull those cameras. We thought about it. We're going to let them sit. We're going to go take blind sits in all these areas based on wind directions. And we're just going to try to learn as much as we can, as quickly as we can. When we're in that system, we'll check the camera 
and hopefully one of us can get a buck on the ground. Yeah, man. Really looking forward to it. It's kind of surreal. It's already here. It's going to be a one heck of a year. It absolutely is. Well, all right, guys, that's a, uh, that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and a written review. See you Monday. See you.